Second Samuel 6. That's what I'm going to try to read. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala to Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs, with harps, with lyres, with tambourines, with systems and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nucan, Uzzah reached out and took a hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irrelevant act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gideite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gideite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now David, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David brought, went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the house of David with rejoicing, or city of David. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire household of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from your house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this 
and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Father, you um, amaze me whenever your word tells us that a great crowd was following you in Luke 14, 15, somewhere around there. And this is your moment. This is your Billy Graham moment when you can win so many people. But you turn around and you lay out the cost of discipleship. Tells us you're not looking for people who are on the sidelines or nominally support what you're saying or just want their tickets checked to go to heaven. Father, sometimes the way you lead us to you is through ways we don't expect. Even as church organizers, I went to a church meeting a few weeks ago and we have all of our grand human ideas. Sometimes those ideas are injected with your Holy Spirit. There is place for logistics, of course. But sometimes you surprise us. Sometimes you take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. We're looking into an old text about worship we probably don't understand, about a culture that's far removed from us. Surprise us with what you tell us. Have your way in our hearts. Say what it is you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. I did open up to Second Samuel 6 this past week, and I saw this, this great story, the story that actually strikes me very similar to First Samuel 7, if you know your book of First Samuel, where the ark returns from the Philistines, to Israel. Seventy people lose their lives in that story, as opposed to the one that we read about this morning. I'm sure this chapter has been looked to by many a pastor, as I was looking to it, as a case study. Much like we might consider Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons in Leviticus 10, who were consumed by their own strange fire or unauthorized fire, as some translations say, that they offer to God. Or we think about Ananias Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They were put to death for their sins, even though they're trying to worship God. And so we meet Uzzah today, who touched the contents of the ark of God, even in an attempt to save it. But he was put to death for his disobedience and mishandling the ark. And so maybe I could have said, we have this case study. What is proper worship? Catholics look to Second Samuel 6 and they find great connections to Mary. God overshadows and indwells the ark. He does the same to Mary. The ark contains the Ten Commandments, manna from uh, the wilderness in a jar, the staff, Of Aaron, Mary's womb holds the word of God, the bread of heaven, and the righteous branch. David shouts and dances for joy in front of the ark in our text today, and John the Baptist jumps in the womb of Elizabeth in front of Mary holding Christ. And there's more connections still. I was going with route one and two. That's that's where I was studying 
It's like the earlier happening in 1 Samuel 7, and it's a case study. What is proper worship? I know all the Pentecostals are saying, yes, you can dance. What does it mean when God slays a would-be worshiper in his tracks? How should we handle worship? And I got to verse 6 or 7 whenever Uzzah died, and I would always stop and always get hung up. I was hung up for a couple of days. And instead of trying to make it work, I went back to my baseline. I went back to, whenever I'm stuck in sermon prep, have I asked the question? What's the question? How does this remind me of Jesus? Sure, it would seem like the Catholic Mary view might be a a temptation. But one thing I couldn't get over the text is, here is the image of a procession into Jerusalem. Where have I seen that before? Jesus' triumphal entry, of course. So though I had done all my studying, and all my, my sources, my five study Bibles, two commentaries, none of them made the connections I'm about to make for you. And I don't say that to say, look how smart I am. I, I say that to say, I'm prepared to hear that what I'm telling you is a bridge too far. <laughs> but I feel this is how the Holy Spirit led me. We're seeing Jesus, the son of David, through King David, in his interactions and in his motions in this text. But before we dig in, I want to deal with two whys. Why am I doing this, making Jesus connections, and then why should we do this? I've mentioned this before if you've been present for any of my super Bible is about Jesus sermons, that there is more than enough passages where Jesus shows us the law and prophets are about him. They're on your outlines. John 5.39 tells us Jesus said to some Pharisees, that's me, that pouring over the scriptures doesn't bring eternal life. The scriptures, which for them in his day was the Old Testament, they testify about him, says Christ. That is who grants eternal life. Jesus basically does Bible study after he resurrects with two disciples on the road to a place called Emmaus. And then eventually his remaining 11 apostles showing them in the law and the prophets where he was testified about. That's why we make Jesus connections. It's biblical. It's how Jesus taught. So why should we do this? So if plain obedience isn't good enough of an answer, the Holy Spirit is kind and he reveals why we should be obedient. In Hebrews 7.19 we read, For the law perfected, Nothing. That's The law is a catch-all phrase for usually the Old Testament, sometimes just fulfilling the obligations of the law. Notice what the author then says. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, out of context, that can sound perhaps even worse than it really is. The point is being made that through the law, through the Old Testament of, of idea, of keep these rules, be holy, and then I'll save you, we found it perfected nothing. We see in our text today that even a bunch of Levites can't properly transport the ark where it should go without someone dying. That's pretty bad. (laughs) But they are breaking laws, and we'll see that. So the author then says, a better hope is introduced. What's the better hope? I'll give you one guess. All right. 
If you're new here, just answer Jesus. You'll win every time. Then the author says it's through Jesus that we draw near to God. I can't believe a pastor is saying this. Not through reading the scriptures and say, give me practical advice. Rather, let's get invited into the story of Jesus. And in so doing, draw near to God. Just like Jesus said again to those overly religious Jews, seek the scriptures for eternal life, you won't find it. Seek the scriptures to testify about me, yes. And me, says Jesus, in me is eternal life. So that's with that preface out of the way, we have five items I want to cover. The, they're in your outlines, and I'll name them as I go through them. But if you're looking at them, you will see that they are all ripped straight from episodes of Christ in the New Testament. Most of them on the day of his triumphal entry, a couple of them just general characteristics or aspects about Christ that I feel David's story here reminds us of. Thanks for nerding out with me. So... You're like, I had no choice, but let's dive in. First, riding on a donkey. That's our first episode, and I know. Where is the donkey? David, again, um, assembled the choice men in Israel, 30,000. He and his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal Judah. So this is actually called Kirith Jerem. There's another name for it. It's just, a you know, one, same city, different names. 1 Samuel 7 tells us this is where the ark has been. It's only eight miles from Jerusalem. Uh, it's been there for upwards of 70 years by this point. The ark is called by the name, the name of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So this is the ark of the covenant. And God did say to Moses back in Exodus 25:22, He says, I will meet you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there about all I commanded you regarding the Israelites. But let us be precise. The ark is not the same as any other nation's statue or idol. God has been working with David just fine without any ark or physical presence up to this point. David has been praying to God about his decisions. So while there is this this physical presence above the ark, we're not saying that the object, the actual object of the ark of the covenant was deity or God. It was the one who promised to be present on the ark who makes it holy. Does that make sense? And we see how holy here in a bit. Verse 3, they set the ark of God on a new cart. And this is the first error of those getting the ark made. For the Israelites, the Levite, who would hopefully have the law down, are told repeatedly, like a chapter I just referred to, Exodus 25, verses 13 through 15, says, Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They must not be removed from it. Other places in the law, like Numbers 4.15, Deuteronomy 31.9 and 25, Joshua 3.15 tells us that the priests are always supposed to carry the ark with these poles. They're not doing that here. <laughs> they grabbed the ark, put it in the new cart, and transported it 
from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, I'm always tempted to say Ohio, sons of Abinadab were guarding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ohio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of firwood, instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. They're headed to Jerusalem. There's a great procession. Great activities celebrating instruments. Reminds me of something. As he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Praising God joyfully, loud voice. Now I was curious, so I did the geography. Jesus is likely coming into Jerusalem from the east. David is coming in from the west. So it's not the same roads. But it's there. The connection for me is there. A joyful procession coming into Jerusalem. Only the Israelites worshiping the king of kings in Jesus' day. But also in David's day, they are worshiping, really if we want to be theologically accurate, in David's day, their worship is centered on the presence within and above the ark. Therefore, they're worshiping the same. King of kings. That's who we proclaim Jesus to be. Yahweh in the flesh. Only, David's not going to make it to Jerusalem, not to begin with. There's this interruption. A haunting interruption, really. We read, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Now, Numbers 4.15, one of the passages I referenced does say this. Aaron and his sons, side note, Uzzah is a descendant of Aaron, are to finish covering the holy objects with all their equipment whenever the camp is to move on. The Kohathites, which is a subgroup of Levites, will come and carry them, but they are not to touch the holy objects or they will die. Should have read the fine print. These are the transportation duties of the Kohites, Kohathites regarding the tent of meeting. But the oxen, back here in 2 Samuel 6, holding the cart, which again, holding the ark, I should say, shouldn't be this way. That's the first problem. They shouldn't have had the cart. Even so, the oxen start stumbling. And what a great day or event to be remembered for, right? David's kingdom is set up. The Philistine threat is no more. It's a great day, bright future. But oops, we destroyed the ark by bringing it back to Jerusalem. Right? So this makes sense. It's the ark. It's where the Lord says, this is my presence. I mean, aside from the deity aspect, if you or I put a box or chest in one of our pickups... And we were told, inside is the original Declaration of Independence, Ben Franklin's glasses, Christopher Columbus's sword, and a flask from some of the original Puritan rum in the 1600s, or other some items. We would make sure that pickup had a cover. <laughs> we A lock, tightened down with straps. We would not sleep until we we're where we're going. <laughs> I'm saying, we get what Uzzah is doing here, and perhaps like most people, decorum and rules, they just fly out the window... We're not going to let this happen. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence and he died there next to the ark of God. 
Understandably, this is where I got stuck earlier in the week. I must have written and mused about four to five different directions the sermon could go, all of them probably valid or helpful. But when I began to look at David and his triumphal entry, I wondered. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, excuse me, verse 8. So he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah as it is today. The day of Second Samuel's writing. So that episode is forever skirt, sketched or burnt into the landscape. What happened there? And it reminds me in Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts, right after the triumphal entry, there's this, this episode where Jesus curses the fig tree. And it's perhaps one of the most angriest, and for some people who aren't quite getting it, one of the most out-of-character moments of Jesus. The way Mark places it, he tells half the story before and half the story after the cleansing of the temple, which was already mentioned. Where Jesus takes the whip and he turns over tables, he runs the religious people out of the temple. Mark says he's on his way from Jerusalem. He was hungry, and after seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then he would curse it, and they would find out that it's not producing anything. Mark says it's that same day he gets to the temple. He runs out the religious businessmen, people looking to make a profit, people cheating those who who come to the temple to worship. Verse 17, he states quite memorably, it is not... It is not written? Is it not written? Man, my list dexia again. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? Interesting. The problem is their what? Their worship, or lack thereof. Similarly, Uzzah, who is of a priestly line, should have known better to begin with. If the ark was really so holy to him, it would be nice if Uzzah had followed directions to begin with. Namely, if the priests were carrying the ark as they should, they could likely navigate hills better than a team of oxen. And so, as the word of God, the bread of heaven, the righteous branch of David, curses the fig tree, telling it to never again to produce anymore, and couples the fig tree with what should be a house of prayer, telling that their fallen establishment of their house is closed, so the word of God, the bread of heaven, and the righteous rod of Aaron, and the ark curses Uzzah for his bad religion. A religion that is not obedient to God. Cuts corners, figures it, it knows better. You see that connection? David feared the Lord today and said, how can the ark of God ever come to me? That's what we're supposed to learn here. I can't say it any better than than one of my commentators. Oopsie. (laughs) There we go. The death of Uzzah has its effect. David becomes freshly afraid of Yahweh. When people are no longer awed, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the community is put at risk. David had a great day planned, I'm sure. Don't you hate it when God wrecks your plans? 
It's the ark. It's going home. It's going to be put into Jerusalem. We'll have it all there, all all compartmentalized, all planned, all ordered. He's got the throne. The, Fer- uh, the, the Philistines defeated the city of David. This is just the final duck to put in the row. Let's get God in Jerusalem. Let's get God Almighty, creator of the universe, star breather, the one who has gotten David where he is. And before David thinks, or anyone in David's kingdom thinks, that God is at their beck and call, this is a solemn reminder that he is still their Lord. He is still their God. Friends, don't let God become another part of your life. Another episode on your schedule. Another thing among many things. God wrecks this worship service, this procession. And David learns the lesson. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? In other words, if the priest, part of the priestly line, cannot successfully transport this ark, what chance do I have? It makes one not want to touch it, right? So then look what happens. This is an interesting thing. Not unlike what happened in the first time, how it how it wound up in this Kiriath Jerem or Baal Judah to begin with. We read, picking it up in verse 10. So he was not willing to move the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. So this Obed-Edom, if we bring First Chronicles 15, chapter 15, which is where that author tells the story, if we bring that into bear, he, he goes into detail who this long caravan is. And because I don't like reading Hebrew phone books, I didn't read it all. But I need you to see this with me, verse 17, just to get context. So the Levites appointed Haman, son of Joel, from his relatives, Asaph, son of Berechiah, and their relatives, the Merarites, Ethan, son of Cushiah. With them were their relatives, second in rank, Zechariah, Jeaziel, Shemaramoth, Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Benaiah, Measasa, Mattathiah, Eliphalelu, Mikniah, bless me, sorry, sneezing there, and the gatekeepers, Obed-Edom and Jael. So you see Obed-Edom there on the end. And it makes me wonder, is he a, a relative of second in rank or... Is he separate from the relatives second in rank? He, he was just one of the gatekeepers. Do you hear the difference? Verse 21 in that chapter tells us he was a singer who led in worship. And I bring this up because Gittite, Second Samuel 6.10 says he's Obed-Edom the Gittite. That's like a woodlander. <laughs> Only it's easier to tell where you're from if you're a woodlander. A Gittite is from Gath. You know, there has only been one gaff that the author of Samuel has ever commented on in First and Second Samuel so far, and that's a gaff in Philistia, a Philistine city where Goliath comes from. And this might mean Obed-Edom is what we would call a Gentile. In fact, Edom is a Gentile nation. Now, there are other gaffs in Israel, but it's usually blank gaff, kind of like Baal-Judah. So there is a possibility that this Obed-Edom isn't from Gath of Philistia, but hey, even David and his men were in Ziklag of Philistia for a while. Why am I making this a big deal? Because you're trying to bore us, Kevin. (laughs) 
among the many things that upset the religious establishment of Jesus' day was his inclusion of Gentiles. Obed-Edom could be a Gentile. For Jesus in his day, we do see a subtle underlying reference, even in his triumphal entry. It's underlying because I think Luke chose to record some specific words that connects back to an earlier episode in his gospel account. You'll see what I mean. Jesus rides in on a donkey and what's happening? The crowds are excited. Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. Hosanna means save us now from the evil Romans is what they were thinking. The crowds are excited. What do the angry religious types say? Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Now follow me. Jesus is saying that his Israelite Jewish disciples could be quiet, but it's not worth it. Why? Because stones, non-Israelite, non-any ethnicity, rather indeed creation, would cry out. But it reminds us of something said earlier in Luke, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Actually, a little before, something John the Baptist says, He warns, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's in other words, he's saying, don't say, I'm Jewish, I'm in. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. It's a subtle foreshadow that God will receive worship from anyone who gives it from the heart. It's not about being Jewish. It's really what John the Baptist and Jesus are getting at. It's about repentant hearts, a circumcision of the heart, to quote Paul. And I don't know if Obed-Edom is truly a Philistine or a Gentile from Gath, but he's still a who in the world is he? And why does he get to have the ark? And he remained in the house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. Right? God scares the king, but he blesses the random Obed from Gath. He's no respecter of persons. He'll take worship from stones if they give it. But this episode, this moment, this spirit of teacher rebuke your disciple comes back as we continue. Verse 12, it was reported to the king, to King David, this is after three months, the procession ended, that parade went ended badly. Everyone went home after the ark was given to Obed. Three months later, David hears, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the Ark of God brought from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. Listen to this. When those carrying the Ark of the Lord, right? You hear that? They learned their lesson. There was no new cart. This isn't, there is no, and when the oxen carrying a cart with, no. They studied procedure. They showed how to do their penance. When they advanced six steps, he, David, meaning he's overseeing this, sacrificed an ox and fattened calf. Now, some translations of the Bible bring out the possible interpretation, and you could actually still interpret it this way in this translation, that perhaps every six steps there's a sacrifice of an ox and fattened calf. And maybe it's not unheard of in Israel when when Solomon dedicates the temple, we read he sacrificed 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep. So it could be Solomon's dad here is overseeing a slaughter every six steps. It was an original eight-mile walk from where the ark had first been. We don't know how far they made it. Nobody knows where uh, Obed-Edom's house is. 
Or it could just be one sacrifice after the first six steps saying, hey, we're doing it by the book now. Sorry. (laughs) Don't slaughter us. The procession continues and we read, David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. That's a priestly garment. Sorry, I'm not going to demonstrate what he was doing. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. So the triumphal entry imagery is back on. It's like Jesus and the donkey and the loud joyous crowds as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David. Saul's daughter, Michael. Notice, it's not David's wife, Michael. Or the queen, Michael. No, the author is wanting to show us that a spirit of Saul's kingdom still lurks in the presence of King David. And she looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. To me, this is another teacher rebuke your disciples moment. She's going to rebuke David before the chapter's done, but I believe this heart was pretty much the one in the same heart of the Pharisees talking to Jesus on that triumphal entry. The Pharisees were upset about really the lack of of social decorum. You're coming into Jerusalem. Your disciples are making a fuss about you being the Messiah. We don't need Rome thinking that there's some nutty, warmongering Messiah among the Jews. Just shut them up, Jesus. And Michael's going to have similar concerns about decorum. But first, what is the first thing Jesus does after his triumphal entry? Some gospel accounts might appear to suggest it's the same day. Other accounts clearly say it's the next morning. Either way, the first thing he does, we already talked about it, is he heads to the temple and he goes there to correct its bad religion. In David's day, there is no temple. There's just a tent or a tabernacle, but the religion isn't bankrupt yet. But just like Jesus, when he gets to Jerusalem in his procession, procession, so David in his procession heads to the temple. Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent David had set up for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. So this is a good thing. Instead of saying David set up money-changing tables and started extorting people. No, David and the Levites learned their lesson when Uzzah died. Verse 18, when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, some translations say meat here because the Hebrew is tricky, and then a raisin cake to each one of the whole multitude of the people of Israel, both men and women, then all people left to his own home. Listen, when a multitude gets free bread from a king named David and they're sent to their homes, I don't think I cannot see a New Testament moment with Jesus where he feeds an entire crowd fish and bread and then sends them to their homes. And bread plays a big role in the Gospel accounts and in the Bible. The bread fed to the crowds is supposed to be a symbol for us. It's a symbol of the bread of heaven for the world that Jesus brings. He feeds 4,000 Jews. He has 12 baskets left over for any other Jew from any of the 12 tribes who want to come. He feeds 5,000 Gentiles. And by the way, we're told in both of these stories that those are just the men numbers, so multitudes more. But there are seven baskets, number of completion, 
left over with the Gentiles, so anybody and everybody can come and have the bread of heaven. And I also like when Mark creatively says, after those two stories, Jesus and the disciples get into the boat. They had no bread except one loaf. No bread except one loaf. My guess is the one loaf is Jesus. And so disciple, so David, I should say, in the presence of God at the tabernacle distributes bread. The whole multitude of the people of Israel, men and women, receive. What Jesus likely wished for that he would find when he came to the temple, but he didn't. Instead, where David finds his opposition is not at the temple with religious leaders, but with his own home. Like Jesus, David's own did not receive him. Because David's own were clinging to the corrupt kingdom of Saul. We read that when David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Michael came out to meet him. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she said. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. Now, Michael is exaggerating, ladies. I know this never happens. (laughs) Men are saying nothing right now for some reason. But what Michael is really upset about is how David removed his kingly attire and wore clothes, likely for Michael, some of those lower-class wacky priests. He might as well have been sporting a tank top among the, the slave girls and dancing. How undignified for a king. To do that in the presence of just anyone. That's the point. Reminds me, I only came across this later. I didn't see this at first, but when Jesus came in on the triumphal entry, Matthew records this interesting exchange. Coincidentally, it is right after Jesus has that moment at the temple. Kind of like David experiencing this conversation after his moment at the temple. After Jesus' moment at the temple, we read, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children in the temple complex cheering, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus told them. Have you never read? Sorry, that's supposed to be Jesus talking. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants. See, children were not a usually welcome There's usually not room made for them in that day and age. And just like the Pharisees getting upset at the disciples, so the priests and scribes are saying, how undignified. Even if this man was the Messiah, which he isn't, but but these kids, these blind, these lame, he might as well throw in servant girls in there, right? And as for Michael and David, David's actions are just unbecoming of a king, and he was doing it in the presence of, of those unbecoming of a king's court. David said to Michael, replied to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. Good one, David. But I think it goes deeper than that, than just a good insult. The story of First and Second Samuel so far has been this. Israel wanted a king. And though God was was rejected in this, he grants them their request. And we forget this next part because we do say and know that David is God's choice. But nevertheless, it can't be any clearer in 1 Samuel 9 
the prophet Samuel hears the voice of God and Saul is first chosen. So much so when Saul is hiding at the coronation ceremony, God literally points him out. (laughs) The voice of God says, that's the king I chose. He's over there hiding. (laughs) It is only after his disobedience, in worship, no less, Saul disobeys on matters of worship. He's not worshiping God properly, kind of like Uzzah. Kind of like a bunch of greedy swindlers at the temple. That he is rejected and the nation is given to a neighbor better than he. And so as David says, the Lord chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. Jesus, around this same time, he's coming triumphantly into Israel, heads to the temple, makes the scribes and priests indignant that he's receiving praise from children and the lame. Jesus tells this parable. There's like 40 different ways. Wicked vine dressers, wicked tenants, wicked farmers. And it's a picture of Israel and Jesus, the true vine. The vineyard granted by God to some tenant farmers who were greedily trying to swindle the master out of his earnings. And when the servants were sent to reap the earnings, they're beaten, they're abused. And then the vineyard owner sends his son and he's killed. And so Jesus even asks his hearers, What will he do to those farmers? He will completely destroy these terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him produce at the harvest. But perhaps they hadn't gotten the picture yet. Jesus was talking about them. They're the evil, wicked tenant farmers, and Jesus, the greater king of David, then says to them, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. Jesus says it again in, in John 15, he's the true vine. The old vine, the corrupt vineyard was, was Israel, kind of like Saul, bad at worship, rejected by God. Jesus is like King David who's, who sets up the temple and David was willing to learn from his mistakes when people like Uzzah dies under his oversight. And so David, who does learn, and is able then to take the ark all the way to Jerusalem, celebrates God's grace. He tells Micah, I will celebrate before the Lord. And then listen to this. I will humble myself even more and humiliate myself. I will be honored by the slave girls you spoke about. And Saul's daughter Michael had no child to the day of her death. I think verse 22 is our biggest Jesus moment. If David is a king chosen by God to replace the old corrupt kingdom of Saul, and Jesus is a king begotten of God to replace the old corrupt vine dressers of Israel, the Jewish establishment. Jesus not only rides in on a donkey to be praised by disciples, the lame, and children, despite the indignation of onlookers who are offended at Jesus suffering such company to come to him, Jesus will then humble himself even more and humiliate himself. He will be honored by even lower company. One robber on his right or left is one such member of that lower company. I mean, we hear from from Paul about Jesus that he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And, And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's the beauty of the God that David knows 
right? That David, who rightly feared the Lord that day, it said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? I believe it's because he saw the Lord justly take out Uzzah. He saw the Lord remind everyone of his holiness and its sovereignty. And it is not that God works for Israel, but Israel is God's. And nevertheless, something about David's heart trusted that the Lord's holiness is not a sign of his hatred for humanity. But it's a sign of his expectation of humanity. Sounds like God says, be holy as I am holy. And he says, it's an expectation that he provides. And even when we still fall short, even with the law in hand, doesn't God still provide? Right? For for the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that's the better hope that none other than the greater King David, who humbled himself more and humiliated himself so that he might be honored by slaves like us. You know, the biggest difference about David's triumphal entry here into Jerusalem and Jesus into Jerusalem so many years later is what David accomplishes when he comes to the tabernacle. It reminds us of what Jesus did in his temple, his people. Again, Jesus went to the, the temple in Jerusalem, hung the proverbial out of order sign on the door, but, but Jesus still has a temple, right? He still has a temple where, where, like David, Jesus is giving bread to the masses. Paul says Jesus' temple is now the people of God, and that's where Jesus dwells. And he's still handing out bread to this day, baskets left over, remaining for anyone who wants it. Jesus' triumphal entry may have ended in priests and scribes finding indignation and Pharisees telling him to quiet his disciples and Jesus turning over tables in Jerusalem. I don't know if that entry was triumphant, but Jesus is still a triumphant king. His temple, the body of Christ, still stands and he offers forgiveness. He offers righteousness and he offers life abundantly through his bread. So I don't think there's any reason to be terrified in the wrong way of the curse of Uzzah. But rather, Christ takes our place and dies for our sins if we accept his bread today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your word, Old and New Testament, all point us to the greater King David, King Jesus. We do thank you for this story of of David coming into Jerusalem and, and how it reminds us of Jesus when he comes into Jerusalem. We thank you that you take our place. Father, another connection is now your word tells us boldly we can come before your throne of grace. We don't have to be afraid like Uzzah or David but we can boldly come before your throne because you have died for our sins through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you rule and reign. You're alive. You're you're well. It shocks us to think about a passage we mentioned in Dean's Sunday School class that even while you were resurrected, teaching, some still doubted. 
whenever they had the resurrected Jesus before their face. Father, whether you're present before us physically or you're present in the Scriptures, in Scriptures written thousands of years before you walked the earth, Father, you are real and you're inviting us still to receive bread, the bread of heaven. Father, help us to receive your bread, to know that we have life through you. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.